I would say, Chief, air-based survivability is an existential issue for the United States Air Force. Other than the ICBM force today, the Air Force can generate exactly zero combat power without functioning air bases. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The U.S. Air Force is going to have a new chief of staff. The current vice, General Dave Alvin, is going to be fleeting up, assuming the United States Senate agrees. We asked a panel of air power thinkers for the priorities they think the new chief should take up. And there's a new fighter in European skies, but with a familiar shape, the man at the controls will tell us all about this historic project. And it's all powered by GE Aerospace. Maintaining U.S. air superiority means 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling for the F-35. The GE Aerospace XA-100 engine is tested and ready to deliver these capabilities. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell's sponsors are daily podcasts. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? Vago, it's another day, another tanker strategy for the U.S. Air Force. <laughs> We've talked a good bit about tankers on this program, but just when you thought it was safe to go back into the budget justification books, Deputy Program Manager for Mobility Aircraft Scott Boyd said this week that it's not clear what the Air Force tanker strategy really is, but they should know by next June. So don't count on that extra 75 KC-46s just yet. In other tanker news, Canada has selected the A330 MRTT to replace its fleet of converted Airbus A310 tankers. The deal for nine MRTTs is worth about $2.7 billion in U.S. dollars. They don't accept Canadian tire money. That's for our two listeners north of the border. A big hullabaloo in the press about Northrop's CEO announcing that they do not intend to bid as a prime on the Next Generation Air Dominance Program. Watch those words, as a prime, and remember just how healthy their systems integration business is. Our business roundtable had a good discussion of the subject this past Sunday, and I think Vago might have some more to say about this in a moment. While we have a fascinating interview coming up later in the show about an old-slash-new airplane in Europe's skies, Another old-slash-new airplane may be headed to a body of water near you. 88 years after its first order, the PBY Catalina is going back into production in an updated version. Don't be surprised if someone finds a modern military use for that World War II design. And the U.S. Air Force is looking at activating a taxi squad. They're going to buy up to six electric air taxis from Archer Aviation for experimentation. Lots of reporting on this, but I recommend John Ostrower's article in the Air Current. Vago? Uh, first of all, you get big kudos for the presentation of the tanker. Well played. Uh, Canadian Tire Money, another excellent, obscure uh, reference. This one's for you, <laughs> Richard Abalafia, uh, who would particularly, I think, uh, enjoy that. And I, I love the notion of the Catalina in whatever capacity uh, coming back. As you know, seaplanes have, uh, what, Briev and Shin Meiwa of Japan have been uh, the two uh, that, but although the Chinese, I think, also have a couple of amphibians. So the notion of the Catalina coming back in the service, you know, this only gets better if we manage to 
figuring out how to use DC-3s and C-47s as uh, aerial tankers and transports again for <laughs> distributed hub-and-spoke operations. Mago, I, I will tell you, I, I live near Patuxent River Naval Air Station, and they've got a Basler DC-3 conversion still as part of the test fleet down there that regularly flies during experimentation. I have to say the DC-3, uh, until even, I don't, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how long ago it was, but was still playing a very important role because there were a lot of them that are still in service once you put turbines on them. The economics of a 29-seat airplane with that cargo capacity and range becomes a kind of a real enabler. And I don't remember if it was Aerospace Magazine that did a report, and I think this is going back about 20 plus years ago, that you know how critical DC-3s were to you know shuttle parts between airports overnight and to keep the U.S. air transport uh, system rolling. Uh, which I thought was interesting. Anyway, getting to the tanker strategy, a lot of very smart people at the top of the service on this, some of whom are friends of ours. Is the service doing a disservice to itself at this point without having some degree of tangible clarity? Because it looked like we had a plan. And if you feel the breath of the dragon on your neck, literally, doesn't it in some respects make more sense to try to get as many tankers into service as you possibly can, right? I mean, we had Ty Thomas on last week from Matreya talking about tankers as a service and how that can alleviate the pressure. But at the end of the day, you need jets on ramps and the KC-46 has significantly more offload capability than 135 that it's replacing, right? Walk us through the logic of this and how it's being received by just about everybody who cares about the U.S. Air Force and wants a rapid modernization. This is one of those places, Vago, where it appears that the future is the enemy of the present. The tanker strategy has been reworked because of the change in what KCZ is going to be, originally conceived as a replacement for the KC-10, now being thought of more as an advanced technology tanker. But the problem is it hasn't been defined yet. And until they know what that tanker is going to be, they don't know how long it's going to take to realize that new design, and therefore, how long a bridge do you need to build between today's fleet and that future one? And so the number of tankers in the middle, the idea of what gets us from here to there has to keep changing until the endpoint is fixed. And that just hasn't happened yet from a studies and analysis point of view. Obviously, the operational requirement has changed, right? I mean, this notion of a penetrating tanker was sort of a, a glimmer and sort of seen as something maybe too ambitious or too exotic. Whereas, you know, we heard from Tom Burbage, you know, really the one of the great features of the F-35 program is the operationalization of durable stealth as opposed to exotic materials and tapes and, and uh, very, very delicate coatings. Do we know enough to know what the rough contours of that future tanker requirement will look like? I mean, do we know any more now than when, you know, Andrew Hunter revealed that to all of us in Denver? We really don't, at least publicly. There may be significant work going on in the classified world to firm up that definition. But if so, the Air Force isn't sharing that with us yet. And frankly, until we know what that is, we can't tell what comes in between. Let's go to the NGAD announcement. There was the expectation that the three folks who were in this competition were uh, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman. At the Paris Air Show, we reported that there were three demonstrators. It's now necked down to two competitors. Northrop Grumman saying that 
they're not going to be in it uh, as a prime. We still don't know whether or not that was an after the fact, right? Hey, you guys didn't make the cut. We like the Boeing airplane and the Lockheed airplane better. Uh, and so that's an easy decision to make. I'm not going to be in it. I'm going to be in it as a, as a supplier. There is some speculation whether or not Northrop didn't bid at all in this or wasn't involved in this, has always been interested in a supplier role and that, you know, another third company could be in it, you know, all sorts of speculation on who that might be, right? Everything from Sierra Nevada to, you know, is it General Latami? I mean, there's a lot of debate and discussion, uh, although, you know, this is a very sort of high-end man or inhabited aircraft, right? From your perspective, what are sort of the interesting takeaways of this? Because Moran Epstein raised the question as, as somebody who's a Boeing and McDonnell Douglas alumni, whether or not the company has the capability, but, but the Boeing guys will tell you, hey, don't count us out. And we have a lot more capability than you think. What do you, what do you make of all of this? Sure. Vago, if you look at the Venn diagram of who has the design capability, who has production capacity, which right now is being tested in a couple of those companies, you start to see that the answer may lie somewhere in between who is the prime and whose design is being flown. Or rather, to put it more simply, one thing we don't know is if one company is looking at building another company's design. So it's very hard to handicap this right now when you don't know even who the entrants were. We suspect, but we don't know. And now that there are by our reporting, two competitors in it, that question hasn't gotten any simpler. We don't know if it's a traditional competitor, somebody new, or a company that's really good at building advanced things and may have gotten a design from someone else. Remember, um, when Kathy Warden announced that Northrop was not bidding, she said, as a prime, that doesn't mean that they might not have sold their design to someone else to produce. There is something to be said for that, right? I mean, Abe Karam, a real diehard in the industry, always would come up with, you know, a clever idea that could occasionally come out of uh, left field. I know that that was the case, I think, very early in the Flara competition uh, or FARA. I can't remember now. Somebody in the audience will, will correct me, but it was one of the two of them. And so, I mean, it's possible that somebody is doing it. On the other hand, these are such big lifts for the prime that if you're going to lift, you might as well do the lift. Right. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff about this program that we think we know, that we thought we knew, that we might have been wrong about. So, I mean, you know, this is the, you know, we're sort of feeling around, you know, it, it looks and feels like an elephant. And I think we might be surprised that it might be a rhino. Uh, right. Right. But the one piece that I would throw in is all of the accounts we're hearing are that because of the cost of the aircraft, it's liable to be a short production run. That means there are some companies that aren't necessarily capable of large production runs, but could build a sophisticated aircraft in 100 or 200 and have the facilities and capability to do that. So we may need to think a little beyond the traditional primes. Yes, but I mean, to me, it's sort of the, the massive nature of the integration challenge, right? And of the three companies, all three companies have an ability to be able to do that in a large program. It's really only two of the companies that have experience with anything that's that's fifth or sixth generation in sort of a full up way. Almost everybody, we, we heard this from Greg Ulmer of Lockheed Martin, the aeronautics boss. We're looking at a buy around what the F-22 was. Friends of mine from companies that are interested in this have mirrored that same thing around 300 aircraft. That's even now, 
based on what we think the requirement is. So that number could actually shrink from whatever the F-22 level was, right? I mean, the F-22 level was 700-something aircraft, and we ended up with 172 or whatever it was, 178. So anyway, I'm, I hear what you're saying. I just don't know who's out there that could architecturally, you know, sort of pull this kind of a design together, get a, a demonstrator out there, you know, and then there are performance considerations, right? Well, maybe we like the Boeing airplane, but, you know, they might not be able to deliver. We've been down this road before, whether with T7 or 46, you know, or is it like it was on F-35 that, you know, the customer may like what's Lock what Lockheed is doing, but wants to put pressure on Lockheed because ultimately do you want your entire, you know, tactical aviation force to be Lockheed products, right? The F-35, the F-22, and then NCAD. Well, when the F-35 contract was awarded, Remember that Boeing, while they didn't have as good a design, had put enormous resources into optimizing production. And the lesson that was taken away from that award was that the real answer would have been the Lockheed design built by Boeing. I just leave that out there as a possible model for NGAD, that you could have one company's design being built by another company, which, by the way, would follow on a lot of the work that Will Roper was doing when he was the Air Force acquisition executive for disaggregating design from production. And um, that Andrew Hunter, in our interview with him a few months ago, thought wasn't a bad idea. Yes, but on F-35, we knew, or, or on Joint Strike Fighter, we knew that it was going to be a very, very big program, right? Thousands of airplanes. And in this case, we're bounding it to say it is not going to be a, a very big program. The bigger program may well be the collaborative combat aircraft, where smaller, relatively smaller numbers of NGADs are controlling vast quantities of these unmanned aircraft, there I could see greater, hey, how do we manage to get this production done and, and do it quickly, right? I mean, for, for that kind of a boutique production quantity. But the fewer aircraft they buy, the more possible manufacturers there are. And that may be the one thing we know about this program. Uh, indeed. Just to tell the audience that we're going to be doing something new after we talk to K-12, give us kind of a sense on what people can expect later in the show. Vago, with the new Air Force Chief of Staff coming in, following the tenure of CQ Brown as chief, it seems a good time to look around, see what the Air Force is today, as opposed to what it was when he came in, and populate the agenda for that next chief. So we asked a number of people who are air power thinkers What's the item that they would put on the chief's agenda if they could? And we got some very interesting answers. Those are coming up later in the program. Yeah, very much uh, looking forward to that. And joining us now is one of the world's most accomplished experimental test pilots, Airbus's Swiss great Gary Cranbull, uh, who is universally known by his call sign K-12. He is a distinguished graduate of the U.S. Navy's Test Pilot School. He's logged more than 4,000 hours in 65 airplanes, including the Eurofighter and the A400M Atlas Transport. He, given that he put both of those planes through their paces, he's got more than 1,000 hours in the Eurofighter alone. But the reason he's joining us today is that among the more than 65 airplanes that he's flown includes uh, his latest, which is extraordinary and exact reproduction of the Messerschmitt 262, the legendary Schwalbe or Sparrow. Uh, then in 1944 became the world's first operational jet fighter. Uh, more than 1,400 of the planes were built, but none of the originals are flight worthy and actually very few of them even remain. Uh, and they left operational service in 1951 from the then Czechoslovak Air Force. Gary, welcome to the program. It was great to see you at Riyadh and it's an absolute honor to have you on the program. 
Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor for me to talk about this aircraft. So, shoot. Uh, as we joked at Fairford for many weeks, we have been telling the audience that we're going to be profiling Europe's newest twin engine fighter. That's actually a true statement, but this aircraft is extraordinarily important historically. Tell the audience why it's so important, as well as who was behind the idea to reproduce it and what it took to turn it into reality. Okay, it's that important because it was a quantum leap. In these times, uh, mid mid forties, to have an aircraft with jet engines and an aircraft that it's able to fly fast and outrun all other um, propeller engine driven aircraft. The idea was because it was easy to get 109s or 108s, even with not original fuselages. However. There was no way to get a Messerschmitt 262. There were 10 in museums around the world, but there were the curators with um, pump guns and pump actions, and whoever um, was getting close as a pilot more than five feet, he would get a blast. So 1993, the foundation, Messerschmitt Foundation, with help of um, Airbus, had the idea, why don't we do a reproduction of 262s? There were plans, there were ideas how to do that. And then the decision was to use the Texas Airplane Factory in Dallas-Fort Worth to manufacture five aircraft. They thought it was cheaper to build it in the USA than in Europe. They take a gate guard, Messerschmitt 262, as a um, twin um, seater, which was called Vera. This was in and a naval air station below Grove as a template. They told the Navy, we will restore it when we can take it apart and measure all the parts that um, were important for these things. So there were a couple of problems. The one problem they didn't know was that the aircraft was a twin-seater. And twin-seater were transformed out of single-seater that failed the specifications. So there were already some failures in there that nobody knew about. Then they used the Imperial wow. system as a measurement, and this was not as precise as the metric system. So there we had now two um, sources of things that could go wrong. Then the problem even exaggerated because the Texas Airplane Factory gave up due to a different lawsuits they had to encounter. And 1998, Bob Hammer took all the things he had. These were five airframes, a bazillion of pieces in Painfield near Seattle, and then he took over. So this was then the start of this um, adventure. Gary, this was the world's most sophisticated aircraft in its day. Its day was 70 years ago. The performance is still amazing. But some changes were needed. For example, you're using new engines for the sake of safety. What's the same about this reproduction? And what's different from an original 262? The same is the shape and more or less the dimensions. There were hardly any, um, what should I say, um, wrong dimensions on this aircraft. What we changed is the engine, the UMO 004, which was originally in the aircraft. You can't reproduce those, and they are not that reliable than modern technology. So it was replaced by a General Electric CJ610, which you find widely also as GEJ85 in fighter aircraft, just without afterburner. Then what were the problems during Second World War with um, Messerschmitt aircraft? Brakes, 
So we had to introduce different brakes and the main landing gear and the nose landing gear of a Messerschmitt um, aircraft were really prone to failures. So there they had to be new designed and reinforced, but just to look alike, they had to look alike. Flight instruments that look similar, we have to, um, to introduce. However, they have to be certified um, nowadays. This was also some something we had to change in the beginning. Then in the end, several parts, when we collected the aircraft here and we started to fly, we found out due to um, these um, problems building the aircraft, we had to redo several parts um, and restore other things that we can um, make this aircraft viable again in Europe due to poor fittings. But now we are in really good shape and this aircraft is marvels to fly and it's a great show in the sky. It's really amazing and it was fascinating when we were uh, alongside the aircraft that you reproduced it right to the fabric taped seams between the body panels uh, and you guys had to put weight, right? Because the new engines were much lighter than the old engines. So you had to ballast the airplane to make sure that it was properly balanced. That's right, because the old engine engines had a three meter length and the new one just one meter and we had to put it at the end of the engine casings so we needed 180 sorry for the metric 180 kilo on each side at the begin of the inlet of the of the engines wow. so this is 360 kilos that we have to to carry in addition let me shift to the uh, reproduction itself, right? Uh, the Airbus collection has historically significant aircraft, especially returning them uh, to flight. But these were also adversary aircraft. And, and when you guys arrived, and when you arrived in the UK for Fairford, uh, you were playfully intercepted by the Royal Air Force's Battle of Britain Memorial Flight over the White Cliffs of Dover. Uh, and it's a, just an incredible picture of you guys together. But Airbus is conscious of this heritage and right down to the choice of a Swiss pilot, and even the paint job, right? Explain the nuances of being able to achieve something historical, but do it in a very respectful way. Yeah, we had or we wanted to use a generic livery that can't be allocated to an active squadron from um, past times. So this was very important to us. We had to um, get rid of some signs, which is German law. So we couldn't put them on there. And this is how we approach this. So it is a lookalike of a Second World War aircraft. However, you can't put it in any squadron. And let's talk about the flying. You said that it flew beautifully, but the original 262s were known for being somewhat temperamental. There's only a handful of people still alive who flew this plane. Some legendary test pilots flew it, like Winkle Brown, you knew. And yes. they left back some very good flight test notes, but how did you prepare for the first flight and how does it fly? <laughs> okay, the first flights, yeah. This is, this is something really very interesting. There are a lot of flight test reports from the German side, from the English side around, which you can read. But in the end, you have to practice what you learned as a test pilot. As a test pilot, you go through a one-year school, and there you learn from cockpit assessment to judge the systems, start the engines, then you start to maneuver the aircraft on ground, taxi, 
um, slow speed, high speed taxi. Whenever you feel comfortable, you do the takeoff, leave the gear down. And from there on, you find out the flying characteristics of the aircraft. With the gear down and still in takeoff configuration, you start to stall. And then you find out what the stalling speed is. And with this speed, you set the flaps to full for a landing, do the same stall, and then you exactly know what your approach speed will be. So you you fly in a very tight um, environment, go up maybe 5,000 feet, don't speed too much, so it will be 180 knots with the gear down, and then find out what the characteristics were. When you finally found out your stall speed, you multiply it by 1.3, and then you find out your approach speed for the landing. And then you settle for a landing, and yeah, with all the skills and all the knowledge you had from former aircraft, this would be pretty successful. And then you had the first flight done with this aircraft. Later on, on the second flight, you raise the gear, and then you start to expand slowly the envelope of the aircraft step by step, till you feel really very comfortable. And this is how you do it. And that's why I just only as a, as a flight director for the museum, I only accept test pilots on this Messerschmitt 262 because it really needs in the beginning certain skills to handle this aircraft properly. And Gary, what are those skills, right? Because we talked about it. It's a very short range airplane. It was designed at a time when we didn't, they didn't understand the full aerodynamics, right? It's a swept wing. The tail is sort of in the wrong place. What are the tricks? Because you don't have an injection seat on this airplane, I should point out, right? Uh, no. You have to get out the old-fashioned way. It has terrible asymmetric thrust properties because the engines are separated. So thank God they're, you know, at least reliable and new. What are some of the tricks and the real uh, demons that exist in its flight envelope that are problematic? Yeah, the one thing is never go single engine at low speed. So we have to keep the aircraft at a higher speed than the liftoff speed to counter in the, the event if we would lose an engine. If you're up in the air, air the, the landing gear raised, then it's actually no problem. You can accelerate and you go to an airspeed regime where you can easily fly the aircraft. But at slower speeds, it wasn't designed to do that because of the small tail. If you compare this, the distance of the engine from the center of gravity and then the small tail tells you everything. No, it's not single engine minded, this aircraft. So these are things that you have to consider. The other thing is also you have the thrust line below the center of gravity. So every thrust change means a pitch moment, pitch up or pitch down, which is really not that nice to encounter in formation flying. However, it's, it's possible. The other thing is the small tail and the swept wing, which gives you a Dutch roll prone um, aircraft. So it starts to wiggle from one side to, to the other side. And this is also something you have to get accustomed to. If you have all these things set, it's really a nice aircraft to fly. Not a lot of thrust changes, then um, you're happy and you can do whatever you want. This is like returning back to but piston engine uh, flying where, you know, every time you have a, a throttle change, you're, you know, having to trim the airplane and everything, right? People get kind of really comfortable with, you know, simple jet engines with good centerline power, like the Eurofighter, for example. At Fairford, 
the 262 was sitting next to Britain's first operational jet, the Gloucester Meteor. And what I thought was amazing was that the Gloucester Meteor has been in service continuously since 1944, with Martin Baker still using it as their test airplane. You know, have you flown a Meteor? No, unfortunately not. What I was flying as a Swiss guy was the Vampire, the Havilland Vampire. But wow. this aircraft wow. was um, advanced to the Meteor. When I saw the two um, aircraft side by side, it was really amazing. The one trimmed for high speed with sleek forms, and the other one just plump to carry two radial flow jet engines. So it was really, really impressive how the designs altered from each other. And I think the 262 was far advanced to flying characteristics of the close to Meteor. Gary, what's next for the collection? You have a variety of Messerschmitts. You now have the 262 operational. What's on your wish list or what's actually in the works? Okay, this museum or this flying museum was created to celebrate uh, Messerschmitt's 100th birthday. So they are solely Messerschmitt aircraft. Now we are looking and we are keen to extend the range. However, this is a question was what our... Um, CEOs and CEOs um, decide to do. For me, it would be really nice to have some Heinkels or some Focke Wolves in the same collection. But it's not up to me to decide and especially not up to me to pay for it. <laughs> Gary, now that you also mentioned paying for it, I think a lot of people will be asking, how much did this cost, right? Because you guys have been fundraising. As you said, the project has been going on for some time. Tom Enders of Airbus was uh, a big advocate for uh, developing the airplane. I should point that out, right? Reiner Oler and a, a lot of the team uh, across the company, both on uh, French, German, Dutch sides were, were supportive of the program. How much did it cost to actually achieve? Luckily, I don't know. Otherwise, I would be shocked. <laughs> I just get it in relations. They said, yeah. We have to put in some money here to make it really reliable. This is the only thing that I know about the project, but I really have no hard numbers. Great. Uh, sir, thanks very much. That was a very <laughs> diplomatic answer, by the way. <laughs> I'm Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary Kleinbühl, K12, thank you so much for joining us on the Air Power podcast. This is an unusual segment for us, but it's fascinating, and I think our listeners are going to love it. It was a joy and an honor. Thank you. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And now our special feature for this week, the Chief's Agenda. The Air Force is about to have a new leader. So we solicited ideas from a number of air power experts on what should be on that new Chief's Agenda day one. Let's start with the Defense Editor of Aviation Week and Space Technology, Stephen Trimble. Well, thank you for asking the question. What I crave at this point is a coherent four-structure plan from uh, the chief of staff of the Air Force. And I say this because uh, over the last few years, we've gotten some strategic concepts 
We've gotten the seven operational imperatives from Secretary Kendall. And just this past March, we got the Air Force future operating concept from General Brown, which had the six overlapping sequential fights, as well as uh, the five functional areas. So <laughs> if you're following then doing the math, it's seven operational imperatives, six fights within the future operating concept, and five functional areas for the Air Force. But what we don't have is a long-term force structure uh, requirement that covers all of those uh, strategic uh, sort of policy goals and modernization goals. We, now, if you just go back five years, uh, we did get something like that, though there was plenty of criticism of it, but it was the Air Force You Need proposal that came out with the requirement of 386 squadrons, which was 74 more than the 312 that the Air Force had at the time. I imagine that's gone down maybe slightly since then. And as a new uh, sort of leadership entered the Air Force, we didn't hear about that anymore. And we didn't hear anything from the half side of the House uh, until March. All we got were the seven operational imperatives from Frank Kendall. And while those are instructive and, and helpful and useful, it's, it's difficult to be able to sort of tie them usefully to a sort of a steady state to understand where the Air Force is and meeting those capabilities. And for that, you really need a force structure plan of some kind. We get that from the Navy and uh, the Army to some extent, but we don't have it from the Air Force. And I, I think it hurts the Air Force probably, but it also hurts uh, sort of public understanding of where the Air Force is today and the Space Force for that matter. Uh, so the Department of the Air Force, you know, and what, what is really needed. So, you know, if there was one thing I could ask uh, the, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force to do for me personally <laughs> is to provide a coherent and uh, rational force structure plan that goes out maybe two or three decades. For Heather Penny, senior resident fellow at the Mitchell Institute and a former F-16 pilot, the recommendation is obvious. I don't think this will surprise you, but it's the questions regarding divest to invest. You know, the Air Force is pursuing a modernization plan that is best characterized by this notion divest to invest, although I know they're not saying that. For example, the service plans to retire over 600 fighter aircraft across the FIDEP, but procure less than 250. That's a significant net loss. And this is just fighters. They have similar plans for the bomber fleet, the ISR fleet, the battle management fleet, and so forth. I mean, I get it. I mean, the Air Force has been underfunded for over 30 years. It's had to defer recapitalization of its core combat capabilities. And these aircraft are now well beyond their service life, which means high weapon system sustainment costs and low availability rates. I mean, it's a recipe for disaster. It's a death spiral for the service. But Divesta Invest is worrying because when have we seen new platforms fielded on time and in operationally relevant numbers? With the sensors, processors, avionics and weapons and tactics, techniques and procedures mature enough to employ credibly against a peer conflict. So the major weapon systems that are supposed to replace this retired fleet, they're not even in production. Like NGAD, right? When are we gonna get E7? Best case scenario with perfect development acquisition and budgets, we're still looking at at least a five-year gap of these capabilities. That's a major gamble. But my question is not actually about force structure or aircraft, although I am really worried about it. My question is about personnel. In the Air Force, our warfighters are tied to their weapon systems. 
divest the weapon system and you divest the experienced warfighters that employed it. Get rid of fighter aircraft and you get rid of fighter pilots. Get rid of J-STARS, you get rid of air battle managers. And we know that experiencing combat matters. It's like that old saying, how do you get a thousand hour pilot? You get a thousand hour pilots after a thousand hours. So here's my question for the chief. How will you retain, train, and experience warfighters that we need when you've divested and gapped their weapon systems? Ted Harshberger was head of the Air Force's Project Air Force think tank for a long time, and most recently ran the studies and analysis operation at Lockheed Martin. So I'd like to first acknowledge that this is a bit of hubris here from me. I do think that senior military leaders really have worked and prepared for this job for decades, uh, unlike a lot of other industries or even the political sphere. And they all come with pretty good ideas about what they want to get done in the role. Uh, that's especially true of General Alvin. He's had a pretty classic progression in his career. He was even successful overseeing RAND Project Air Force for a period of time, and that's an assignment that's broken a lot of good officers. And in his current position as vice chief, he really won't be walking into an environment that's unfamiliar and you'd expect some continuity. And I do think if you look at his background, he's intellectually and in terms of experience, one of the best prepared chiefs to engage on strategy and budgeting debates about the future shape of the Air Force. So that's all good. Having watched a lot of chiefs over the years, I think there's some common attributes or behaviors in the role that have led to greater success. Those are mainly cultural and interpersonal in flavor rather than, you know, flat out substance. So uh, uh, let me just give you a couple of those. Um, first, I point to sensitivity to political context as important. And it's a, it's a form of emotional intelligence for chiefs. And for Air Force chiefs of staff, that context is mainly set by their immediate predecessor and the secretary with whom they work. General Alphen, if he's confirmed, will have the benefit and the challenge of following General Brown who's a well-respected and thoughtful general officer and a decent person, but not seen as a pushover. I think the future is going to give General Brown a lot of credit for navigating the birth of a new service, the space service, without a lot of serious hostility and conflict, which could have happened. Perhaps even more important is his working relationship with Secretary Kendall, who's, let's all admit, an unusually prepared and forceful secretary of the Air Force. But the political appointees are, by definition, not permanent. And so General Alvin and his staff will both need to work closely with Secretary Kendall while being prepared to pivot, perhaps quickly, to running the Air Force without Secretary Kendall's political acumen and top cover. Second, you don't want to fall into the trap that many chiefs across the services have stumbled into. You need to be the chief of staff, not the chief of the Air Force. It's a temptation to spend too much time traveling and showing the colors. And it does pump up the troops. And it does keep the Air Force in the news, but there are many senior officers charged with leading the forces in the field. Only one can drive the institution from the Pentagon, that's the chief of staff. And when you're acting as the chief of staff, it's important to put in the hard and somewhat thankless work required to lead and drive a well-functioning air staff. I've watched too many chiefs fall prey to the frustration of bureaucracy and try to end run their staffs. And finally, I'd give the same general advice I'd give anyone taking over a major organization, but it's been in a particularly important and meaningful one for Air Force leaders to consider given recent history. Uh, the biggest challenges will not be the ones you expected or have necessarily prepared to confront. And so it's essential to keep your aperture for information open as wide as possible. And in particular, 
don't shoot the bearers of troubling news. Err on the side of transparency and communication. That's very tough to do in D.C. And not every chief has managed it, but it's still good advice. So I'll loop back to where we started. I really do feel a little presumptuous with this. Uh, should the Senate confirm him, I have a lot of confidence in General Alvin's future success. Caitlin Lee, Director of Acquisition and Technology Policy at the RAND Corporation. I think my top item for the new chief of staff would be to keep pushing on the Air Force efforts to develop a new generation of UAVs, whether that's coll collaborative combat aircraft or something else. The UAV requirement pervades all of the operational imperatives that the current Secretary Kendall has put forward, and I think it's a really important priority for the Air Force as they prepare for the pacing challenge they face in the Indo-Pacific. I think UAVs solve two really big problems for the Air Force as it relates to its posture, especially in the Indo-Pacific. First, I think these UAVs can provide some combat power, for some ways for the Air Force to rapidly seize the initiative in a conflict with China. And right now, we don't have that ability to mass force quickly in the theater. And I think UAVs could bring that to the fight, both for sensing, targeting, and also strike missions. The second reason I think it's really important to bring UAVs into the theater is to build operational resilience. So when the fight lasts longer than a few days, as we all would, would hope it would if it ever happens in the first place, UAVs can present a potentially low cost option, low risk option to keep building forces into the fight after that initial conflict. And so because these UAVs can potentially be low cost and bought in large numbers, they can really contribute to our ability to both bring combat power to bear and build operational resilience. In particular, I think it's really important to look at options to buy lower cost UAVs that are runway independent and can be distributed across the Indo-Pacific, especially within the first island chain, uh, both to be there in the event that a conflict occurs, and then also to provide more resilience and more force capacity over time, kind of reducing the burden on our manned aircraft and also, our, importantly, our pilot force. Both of those assets are limited, and so UAVs provide a way to offset those very limited and precious resources. This gets to my last point, which is that in order to build a force that has more UAVs in it, the Air Force is going to have to look at some tough trades. And I think it'll be really important to show Congress and DOD that the Air Force is willing to do that. And so in closing, I'd like to say my recommendation to the new chief is to really push on the UAV issue and make fundamental change in the force structure that reflects the value UAVs can bring uh, to the challenges facing the Air Force in the next three to five years. One other priority that I think the chief should really be looking at is pushing further on General Brown's mandate to accelerate change or lose. I think the Air Force has a lot of runway with that one, pardon the bad pun, but the service really needs to get after this idea of operational experimentation that General Brown introduced. And so it's this idea that we know from Ukraine that the commercial sector is playing an increasingly huge role in the development of new technologies that are being used on the battlefield. And the U.S. absolutely needs to harness that. And I think the Air Force has a real role to play here in terms of trying to pull these commercial technologies into the service, get them into the hands of operators at the squadron and group level, and actually trying to employ these new technologies, seeing what works, failing fast, and then picking winners and incorporating them into operations. I think it's crucial for the Air Force to get after this commercial innovation that's happening very quickly, both because the U.S. will fall behind if we don't do it, but also because the commercial sector right now is moving so much faster than DOD. And we know that the problems we face, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, are relatively short term. And I think leveraging and harnessing that commercial sector will be critical to bringing new capability to bear quickly. 
finally. David Achmanek, senior researcher at the RAND Corporation and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force Development, a planner's planner. What does he want on the chief's agenda? I would say, Chief, air-based survivability is an existential issue for the United States Air Force. Other than the ICBM force today, the Air Force can generate exactly zero combat power without functioning air bases. It can't do air mobility. It can't do airborne ISR without functioning air bases. Since Operation Desert Storm in 1993, the Chinese and others have been purpose-building forces to keep U.S. air power out of their wars, and they've been succeeding. It's no secret that thousands of accurate ballistic and cruise missiles now can reach the first island chain from mainland China. Many hundreds can reach the second island chain. And these are not your father's scuds. These are highly accurate missiles that can destroy runways, destroy aircraft in the open, damage fuel supply and distribution systems, destroy weapons, munitions, storage bunkers, uh, maintenance hangars, and the like. And yet we keep fielding forces that play into China's increasing arsenal of precision strike weapons. The Russians, too, before they expended their ordinance in Ukraine, had lots of weapons that they could use to suppress sorties and air bases. And even the Iranians are in this business big time. The Secretary of the Air Force's OI-5 recognizes the need for increased investments in base resiliency measures. An analysis points to cost-effective ways that can mitigate the damage from these missiles. We're talking about aircraft shelters for fighter-sized aircraft, fuel bladders, airfield damage repair kits. And the Agile Combat Employment concept, ACE, also has the potential to raise the price to attack of our enemies, but there is no silver bullet. At most, you're talking about modest improvements in the survivability of the force. These kinds of things are necessary, but not, in my view, sufficient. And barring some miraculous breakthrough in active defense, I think a key part of the future for Air Forces will be to invest in capabilities to generate air power independent of runways. The XQ-58, the Valkyrie, is the current poster child for this. The Air Force Research Lab has been flying this drone for some years now. It's a derivative of the target drones that we've used for decades to train our air-to-air crews. Launched from a trailer using bottle rockets, it's recovered with a parachute and a winch. Very simple, low-tech. It has a 1,200-pound payload, can fly several thousand miles autonomously. And small versions of this could be used to populate sensing grids and targeting grids over highly contested battle spaces. We're talking about things like the Altius 900 class. Stepping back from this particular example, Chris Bros in his book, Kill Chain, points out that for decades, the U.S. Armed Forces, not just the Air Force, have been on a vector. And that vector can be characterized as buying increasingly exquisite, increasingly expensive manned platforms in ever smaller numbers. That's a recipe for a fragile force to take into a conflict with a highly capable adversary. And he recommends going on a different vector, buying large numbers of inexpensive but smart things you can put into the battle space, for the most part unmanned, and invite the enemy to shoot them down, returning to the hallowed principle of mass. To conclude, I recommend that the Air Force be moving out smartly to create a situation in which our enemies have to engage in a scud hunt in order to keep the Air Force out of the fight. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.